Good morning. Congratulations for braving it through the weather today and coming. Did anybody think about not coming because of the rain? Good. I'm glad you didn't. You know, I still want to thank Lily. We thanked her last week, but I want to thank her again for the superb job she did in our study. All of the time and effort, all the prayer, all the heartfelt uh, musings and uh, listening to the Holy Spirit really paid off. Lily, you did a great job. And I want to thank you particularly for the last lesson that we studied last week, which was the exhortation not to worry. I needed that this week. Did anybody else need that this week? Yep, yep, we do. And I want to also exhort you with this new study, don't worry. There are some questions that are tough, aren't there? Yep. I wrestled with them, too. And, you know, sometimes when I write these studies, it's because I'm not sure what the answers are either, and I want to hear what you guys have to say about it. <laughs> That's part of what makes Spice so vibrant, is not all of the questions we have are wrote. Not all of them are easy to answer. We need to wrestle with them. We need to think about them and ponder them. We need to start our study so sooner than Monday night so that we have time to really think about it and maybe even pray about it and see what the Holy Spirit says. So I would really encourage you to do that. And if you really get stuck, call one of your table mates. Call your husband if you have one. Call your table leader. Call me. And let's talk about it. Let's dialogue about that. But I'm really looking forward to the muscles of our faith being stretched through this study. Don't be afraid of that. It's going to be good. So let's dive into Hebrews 11. Let's answer the, the five W's on the book of Hebrews. What, where, who, when, why. Just to give you a little bit of information. First of all, where is it? It's in the Bible. <laughs> it's in the New Testament, which is the latter part of the Bible. And you can see up on the screen exactly where it fits with these other letters that were written to the new fledgling church in the first century. It is, scholars believe, a letter that was written to Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. It was originally written in Greek. Most people believe that it was written between A.D. 64 and 70. So very early in that first century, the destruction of the Temple of Jerusalem happened in A.D. 70. And because this particular author makes no mention of that, it's thought that it was written before that. So somewhere around 64 to 70. Who wrote it is the million-dollar question. It's unknown. In fact, the oldest manuscripts of Hebrews do not claim an author of any kind. Some people think it might have been Paul, and that was a prevalent thought for a while. But as scholars started to really dig a little deeper, they were learning too, just like us. They saw some stark contrasts between the way that the manuscripts we know were from Paul were written and the way Hebrews is written was very atypical in several ways. In fact, the beginning of this book, 
is particularly atypical. In fact, it's a letter, but we call it a book because it's in the Bible, right? Take a look at the first two verses in the first chapter of Hebrews. This is Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2. It says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets and at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. Boom. Right off the get-go, he hits the ground running. No, good morning, how are you? I'm hoping you're doing well. I've heard great things about your faith. No, he just hits the ground running. That's very atypical of the letters that were written back then. And that, you know what that tells me? I think this author was an introvert. And I'll tell you why. I recently discovered in the past few years that I am an introvert, honest to goodness. I've learned to, to operate in an extrovert world, and I love teaching, but, and I love speaking, but the way that I refresh is in quiet and solitude. And when I go to parties, I'm, I don't like to chat. And I don't blame people who do, or I don't think less of them if they do, but I'm not a chit-chatty kind of girl. I'd much rather sit at a table with a bunch of brilliant ladies and talk theology. <laughs> You know, that's me. And that's kind of the way this starts, isn't it? It's not chit-chatty. It's deep. Right from the get-go. He hits the ground running. This unknown author displays extremely polished Greek. He knows the Old Testament inside and out. And from the way he quotes, quotes Old Testament passages, it's likely that he was a Greek-speaking, or what we say Hellenistic, Jewish, that converted to Christianity. It's obvious that he's thought very deeply about the links between Judaism and Christianity. So why did he write it? Well, if you noticed in verse 1, and, and as a matter of fact, when I read verse 1 and 2, it absolutely delighted me that I heard the flipping of pages from you. That's awesome. Do that. I will have a lot of the, the passages that I read up on the screen, but if you like uh, looking in your own Bible, please do that. I really encourage that. That's awesome. So in that first verse of the first chapter of Hebrews is the phrase, our ancestors. So right there, he's identified as someone that has lived a Judaistic past and is really well-versed in the history of the nation of Israel. They believe, scholars believe, that this author wrote this book to help Christian Jews who were wavering between those two worlds and maybe even being tempted to go back to Judaism because persecution was so rampant. It still is today, isn't it, in a lot of places? He uses a careful and methodical approach to help make the connection between old and new. They are not mutually exclusive. In fact, they're critically connected. And he does an excellent job of helping us to understand that. In fact, what we're doing in this study, using our bookmarks, flipping back and forth between Hebrews and Genesis, is exactly what this author was doing in writing this letter. He was truly helping his recipients to put feet to their faith. Extra credit, read the whole book, 
if you get a chance. It's well worth it. Lily actually wrote a study years ago where we got to dive really deeply into it, and it's so worth looking at. So, um, you know, if you like reading, even if you don't, read it if you have time. <laughs> so let's take a look at the first verse of our passage today from the vantage point of different translations. I love the fact that we can get a richer understanding of what Scripture says when we look at these different translations into English, since we don't all read Greek. Here it is from NIV. Again, this is our memory verse. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. In the New American Standard Version and the New Revised Standard, which is the version that's in the pews in the sanctuary in this church, it says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The King James Version says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Notice the words faith and hope are in every single one of these. And then finally, the message, which is not a direct translation. It's what we call a transliteration, which is putting these thoughts and ideas into today's wording or today's vernacular. It says, the fundamental fact of existence is that this trust in God, this faith, is the firm foundation under everything that makes life worth living. It's our handle on what we can't see. I love that. Get a grip right? I love that. How many people have ever seen the Flintstones? Oh, good. Okay, so you get to sing with me. Just the very beginning. I'll tell you when to stop. I'll go like this. That means stop if you've ever been in choir. Okay, ready? Flintstones, meet the Flintstones. They're the modern Stone Age family. From the town of... Nice. Where do they live? That's right. Bedrock is more than just the town where Fred Flintstone lived. Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines bedrock as the solid rock underlying unconsolidated surface materials such as soil. Think of soil as circumstances. What are some circumstances you can think of that we live with every day? Traffic. That's excellent. Relationships. What else? Health, weather, finances, circumstances, soil. What about emotions? What do you think of? Happy? Fear? Joy? Excellent. Soil. It moves, doesn't it? It's not always certain. It changes. How easy is it for you to be swayed by those? Especially traffic and weather, right? So from a spiritual standpoint, what is bedrock? Is it simply faith alone? Or is there something deeper? Or is there someone deeper? In our previous study, we heard about what Jesus said concerning something like this. Let's read that. It's out of Luke 
chapter 6, verses 46 through 48. Jesus is speaking to his followers, and he says, Why do you call me Lord? Lord, that also means master or rabbi or teacher. And do not do what I say. As for everyone who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice, I will show you what they are like. They are like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on a rock. When a flood came, the torrent struck that house but could not shake it because it was well built. Hear his words. Put them into practice. Get that grip. Dig down deep. Lay your foundation on a rock. Jesus is bedrock. Who he was, what he said, what he did, who he is. If you want to know more about that, ask your table leader. If we're wise... We choose to trust him and build our house on that, in that town of bedrock. And know that it will stand when the storms of life come against us. I know. I've lived through some pretty powerful storms. How about you? If Jesus is the bedrock upon which we build our foundation, choosing to live there, is where faith reveals itself and where we find ourselves today in Hebrews 11. Let me read that again. If Jesus is the bedrock upon which we build our foundation, choosing to live there is where faith reveals itself and where we find ourselves today in Hebrews 11. The theologian N.T. Wright says that in Hebrews, faith and hope are always linked. He says, faith is looking at God and trusting him for everything, while hope is looking at the future and trusting God for it. In our memory verse, faith is actually defined in relation to hope. Faith is confidence in what we hope for. What does hope look like without faith? See the balloon? Now, it's inflated, isn't it? But where is it? It's lying on the ground. Our own air filling it doesn't make it rise. Simple optimism, wishful thinking. That's what hope without faith is like. It'll inflate that balloon, but it's not going to make it rise. What does hope look like with faith? The balloon is flying. Like helium making a balloon rise, faith makes hope rise. Faith not only gives hope buoyancy, it also gives hope traction. It's what allows our hope to become assurance and conviction. It projects our vision forward and gives us momentum. Repeat after me. Faith is confidence in what we hope for. And assurance about what we do not see. See, you're working on your memory verse already. That's it. That's our memory verse. 
There are lots of metaphors surrounding hope, and we talk about them at Spice. You may think about them as you're driving in your car. God might inspire you through a child or through a friend, um, but they're also in the Bible. One of my favorite passages that talks about hope is Isaiah 40, verses 28 through 31, and it says, Do you not know, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the end of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who what? Hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Renewed strength. Why? Because hope was invested in the Lord. Not only renewed, but soaring on wings like eagles. Hope in the Lord, undergirded by faith, brings buoyancy traction, assurance, conviction, vision, and strength. Have you ever skydived? Honestly, there's nobody here who's ever skydived. There's one brave soul. You know, have you ever had the desire to? (laughs) Raise your hand if you've had a desire to do it. Okay, thank you. I don't feel so weird. My husband and I were coming home from vacation this last summer. We always go up north to um, the San Juan Islands, and we have family homes up there that we stay at, and we love it. We spend as much time as we can up there. Well, we're driving home on, uh, I think it's 5.05, um, in between Redding and Vallejo. I think that's 5.05. And out of the blue, it just kind of hit me, and I asked my husband, would you ever skydive? He looked at me and said, no. (laughs) He said, would you? I said, well, I, I don't know. I just kind of thought of it. Maybe for a milestone. Maybe, you know, I'm, I'm working on losing weight. And if I lose all my weight, and maybe when I'm 80. Because <laughs> i got to work up my strength and my courage. I said, you know, I might. Because, you know, when you skydive the first time, you're not doing it alone. There's this guy on your back that's the expert, and he knows when to pull the chute. He knows how to get you down safely. So that would encourage me, you know, I, I think, knowing that. And, and he just kind of still thought I was a little weird. But nevertheless, God planted that in my mind because the very next day, my husband gets a phone call, and he was a manager for a retail store, and he learned he lost his job. And it happened when we were gone on vacation. This particular company was eliminating this entire tier of management. And he was one of over a thousand people who suddenly lost their jobs because this company was downsizing. And boy, we were stuck. At least we felt that way. We sat around the dining room table and we talked about it. And we said, you know, why don't we pray about it? after we talked about it. So we prayed, and the Lord brought back that memory to me of the skydive. And I said, you know, I, I think maybe that was God, because that's what's happening right now. We're in free fall, and all we can see is the ground coming up very quickly. But we're not alone. God's on our back. He's the expert. 
He knows when to pull that chute. He knows how to get us to the ground safely. And you know, that had to be God, because I never would have thought of that. I love it when that happens, when you either hear something from someone or it comes to you, and you know it's too good for you. (laughs) You know it's God. And that's exactly how it felt, was that he had planted that thought in me, because nothing takes God by surprise. He knew. And that inspired us to get a grip on faith. That inspired us to step forward and to see what God had for us. And now, my husband has a job. In fact, we got a great severance package that kept us afloat. I started working full time at trying to get new piano students. I'm a piano teacher. At the time, I started with about 20, and I was hoping for about 25. I now have 42 piano students. (laughs) God just opened the door, flung it open, and yes, amen. And, uh, and my husband has a new job that he loves. He's one of these guys that knows how to fix anything, build anything. He's very creative. And he's a people person. He's the extrovert. And he's in a job where he gets to do all this at this huge apartment complex here in uh, Walnut Creek. And he loves it, installing appliances, fixing problems that tenants have, and sharing his birthday cake with them yesterday. And it's just been a really wonderful experience for him. And he, he really loves it. So I'm so glad that God is able to work all things together for good. He's able to take those scary skydiving experiences of our life, reassure us and encourage us the way he does, and then let us know that this wasn't a surprise at all. He had it planned all along, and he had something better for us. So the bottom line, Hans and I chose to invest our hope in the Lord, and faith was activated. We gained buoyancy, traction, assurance, conviction, vision, and strength. So over the next eight weeks, we'll be reading about people who grasped these truths and allowed faith to propel their lives forward as they faced challenges in an ever-changing world, just like we do today. This week, we read about Abel. You'll revisit that story at your tables today and wrestle with questions you might have regarding his life. And remember, some of those questions are still questions that many scholars are not sure of either. And so it's okay if we don't have pat answers. In fact, I think God works in those little moments of mystery and wrestling to help us get a deeper grip and a deeper footing on bedrock. And those are good things, good conversations to have. You may be posing some of those same questions that the scholars have. And they've wrestled about Abel for years. But this we know for sure. Hebrews 11.4 says that Abel's actions were undergirded by faith. Abel's faithful relationship with God caused him to offer the best portion of the first fruits of his flocks to God. And God not only accepted Abel's offering, but Abel's faith impacted his relationship with God. And by faith, it says, Abel was commended as righteous. And that means right standing. Right standing with God. Rock solid. 
And Abel's account of faith still speaks today to us. Think about the words that we've seen today in different translations of Hebrews 11.1. Confidence, hope, assurance, conviction, trust, a firm foundation under everything that makes life worth living. Now insert those same words into your view of Abel's faith. Based on these words, we see a glimpse of what Abel was like, a man of faith in relationship with God, confident, hopeful, assured, with strong convictions, trusting in God, standing on a firm foundation under everything that made his life worth living. Don't you long for a life like that? Me too. I hope that in the next eight weeks we'll be able to see ourselves a little closer, a little deeper into that kind of life. In closing, take a look at what Romans 5 verses 1 and 2 say about this in the message. It says, by entering through faith into what God has always wanted to do for us, set us right with him, make us fit for him. We have it all together with God because of our master, Jesus. And that's not all. We throw open our doors to God and discover at the same moment that he has already thrown open his door to us. We find ourselves standing where we always hoped we might stand, out in the wide open spaces of God's grace and glory, tall and shouting our praise. Have you explored these wide open spaces with God? If not, what's holding you back? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the promise of open doors. We thank you that you can even give us strength and courage to open our door to you. And what a marvelous truth that your door flings wide open for us. Would you inspire us to come out into these wide open spaces with you today and experience what you're like, what your love is like, what your grace is like, what the glory of your presence is like. Change us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.